This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Temperatures and seas are rising around the Bay Area, and today we will discuss how the region is getting ready for our new normal. Experts say Bay Area residents will have more beach days in the future and also more opportunities to work in the growing clean tech economy. But the changing climate also brings big risks and costs. Over the next hour, we will talk with our live audience in San Francisco about the upside of a cleaner economy and the downside of climate disruption. We're pleased to be joined by three eminent Bay Area leaders. Sam LeCarter was mayor of San Jose. He traveled to the Vatican last year to participate in a conference convened by Pope Francis. Libby Schaff is mayor of Oakland. She attended the Paris Climate Summit in December, where 195 countries pledged to grow their economies and cut carbon pollution, primarily by moving away from fossil fuels. And Phil Ting is a member of the California State Assembly, representing the west side of San Francisco and Daly City. He's the new chair of the Assembly Budget Committee. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Let's begin with Mayor Schaff. Uh, Clean tech is not often on the top of mind when someone thinks of Oakland. What's happening in Oakland in terms of clean tech jobs, companies? What's going on there? You know, we have more than 7,000 clean tech jobs in Oakland, and we're fast becoming one of the uh, highest concentrations of solar-related companies and organizations of anywhere in America. And so it was great being in Paris um, to talk about how uh, climate change actually can be an economic driver for a city and for a region. And I think that's something that um, California as a whole state is very proud of actually more sun than San Francisco, so that kind of makes sense. Uh, uh, Sam Licardo, uh, Silicon Valley kind of fell in love with clean tech and then fell out of love with clean tech uh, after they realized that it's not so easy to make some money uh, in that versus uh, software. Uh, it, it, where is the clean tech job creation as part of your economy down in San Jose? Well, it's, it's still growing strong, and we have great companies like SunPower make the most efficient uh, solar panels in, in the world. Uh, and uh, wonderful uh, technology from Bloom and Tesla and an awful lot of other companies that are really going to transform and hopefully decarbonize our economy. But uh, the reality is is that we need both the innovation and we need the manufacturing, and that requires uh, a bit of a challenge right now, given the price of land in a lot of parts of Silicon Valley and throughout the Bay Area, to be able to accommodate both. And so we're grappling with that a little bit, but we're starting to see uh, manufacturing revive. Because one of the raps against Silicon Valley is that they create cool things that are then made elsewhere, that most of the value and the jobs go somewhere else. So you're saying... And there are some... Yes, and the greenhouse gas emissions uh, occasionally flow from shipping all those products from other countries. So we want to do everything we can to ensure that they get manufactured uh, here at home. Uh, We're we're really seeing great opportunities increasingly to do that, particularly with high-value uh, products uh, increasingly, companies are recognizing the value of doing the manufacturing, where the engineering is happening, where the design is happening. 
Okay. And Greg, if I could sure. just throw in real quick, we're also looking at the social equity angle of the economic opportunities. And so uh, we're working, for example, with an organization called Rising Sun, and they are training uh, low-income uh, people of color as well as our reentry population to go into neighborhoods usually where they grew up, um, and help residents do energy audits of their own homes, as well as train people to do the installations of solar panels. So um, we're really looking for opportunities to leverage our climate action work with our social equity agenda. Filting, how about statewide? You obviously represent San Francisco, but sit in Sacramento. Uh, California is known as a clean energy leader. Uh, what's going, what are the priorities up in Sacramento in terms of pushing this forward? Well, la- last year we had a banner year where we uh, really doubled down on our climate change legislation. We renewed AB 32 to really reduce uh, the, to increase the RPS standard from one-third to 50% by 2030. And then on top of that, we also went and set a goal for the built environment to make sure that 50% of the buildings in the state are now energy efficient. The one piece of the uh, trifecta we weren't able to get done was how to figure out how to reduce our dependency on petroleum usage by 50%. I think uh, the governor is going to be really pursuing avenues administratively. We'll be looking at different avenues. One of those ways is to through our cap-and-trade funds. Cap-and-trade is a program where you're basically taxing pollution and using that money to incentivize uh, greenhouse gas reductions. So one of those things that we're going to be doing is really putting more money into clean vehicles, um, and that's consumer vehicles, but also uh, vehicles that deliver uh, materials in the ports and all that, all the uh, high commercial vehicles, too. And the reason the governor didn't get that trifecta was moderate Democrats in the Central Valley and pushback from the oil industry. So what's the oil industry is not going to sort of let that happen. Uh, how do you think the governor is going to be able to do that over the opposition of industry? Well, one, I think he's going to do part of it administratively. And I think others is we're going to have to look at other strategies. I think uh, one thing people were opposed to was really taxing gas or actually uh, reducing gas usage. There was this sort of rumor going around that we were going to have to ration gas like the 1970s. And I think that was not, a, that was not true. But what we can do is really move people away from gasoline uh, I know Tesla just announced their car is going to be a major change where now consumers could actually access that technology with more and more people using that as well as natural gas vehicles or hydrogen fuel cells. We're, we're going to really try to challenge consumers to move away from petroleum, and that will hopefully reduce our reliance on it. Mayor Ricardo, uh, the city of San Diego is under a governor, uh, a mayor who's a Republican, and they have a pretty ambitious 100% renewable goal in San Diego. Uh, what do you think about San Jose? Could you get to 100% renewable? Sure. Uh, the challenge, of course, is when, right? And at what cost? We're, yeah, absolutely. And and we are putting together our strategy actually this year, and I hope we'll be uh, successful at the launch in, in a few months. What we're working on primarily is uh, really trying to see how we can do what they failed to do in Paris, which was really commit to goals that would ensure that we would uh, keep temperature rise at less than 2 degrees Celsius by 2050. Uh, that requires extremely ambitious uh, goals around reduce, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, about 6% annually uh, for a city like San Jose. Challenging thing to do when, in fact, you're growing enormously in population at the same time. We're going to add probably 350,000 people by, by 2040. So we, we've got to somehow see how we can essentially uh, fix this engine while the... The, uh, the, the, the cars running down the road. 
And I think we're primarily going to be focusing on uh, certainly our, our renewable portfolio in, um, in terms of electricity generation and distribution, uh, moving to community choice aggregation, which is something we're studying very intensely now. We'll be coming back for a decision later this year. Uh, really seeing how we can electrify our transportation infrastructure significantly. I think we really want to get more car charging stations out there. It's going to be critical. Uh, and, and really push uh, on an awful lot of opportunities that we see in the, um, in the technology ecosystem around us. There's some incredible innovation happening around us. We just need to see how we can better leverage it uh, in civic applications. Mayor Schaaf, San Francisco recently, uh, first in the nation, has a law. New buildings have to have solar on top. Uh, you mentioned Oakland being a solar leader. Would you consider requiring new buildings in Oakland to have solar? Well, you know, we do have a green building ordinance in place, and we are looking at modernizing it. But I think that where Oakland really wants to play a leadership role is not just looking at our core emissions, which is the traditional way that cities measure how they're doing as far as producing greenhouse gas. We're really looking at our consumption. So in other words, it's not just how much greenhouse gas gets emitted from within the boundaries of the city of Oakland, but when I buy this pair of shoes, how much greenhouse gas was emitted in the manufacturing and transport of these shoes that I have now consumed. And in Oakland, um, we've really been focusing on that consumption goal. Uh, So far, we've reduced by 14%. And that is during a growing economy. And so we've really been focused on, for example, our zero waste goals and um, very aggressive uh, recycling, uh, particularly curbside pickup of food waste, which um, we are also partnering with East Bay Mud to try and digest that and turn it back into energy that gets sold to the grid. So those are some of the innovations. Um, And that was a cool part about Paris, was really lifting up the roles that cities can play in this global challenge. So how does the government actually do that? Tell people, hey, don't go on Amazon tonight and get that thing tomorrow. Wait two days or go to downtown Oakland and shop for it. Is that that kind of telling people to resist those carbon intensive impulses? Well, I think I think there are two lessons that we learned in Oakland. One, um, train the children and the children will train their parents um, as as a mother. Um, what the kids are learning in school is really powerful and, and it's really been a successful model. The second was a real learning experience that we had in, a, in going towards this uh, this zero waste contract. You know, the technology exists now for them to separate uh, the food waste out after collection. But the Sierra Club really lobbied us to to do something that probably is going to have less diversion right away, but serves to really educate and create consciousness about where your garbage goes. Um, by making people source separate themselves in their homes, in their apartments, and actually put your food waste in what we call affectionately the stinky pail at our house, <laughs> um, and really look at how much garbage am I putting in this container marked landfill. It creates a consciousness that we believe will have bigger dividends down the road. Filtering uh, waste disposal, waste is a big part of carbon uh, emissions, uh, food, etc. San Francisco has one of the very first composting laws, but that's a very local thing. They're hard to get at. Is there a way that the state can get at such a big issue that's so localized? We did. We passed a major composting waste reduction legislation in uh, 
2014, West Chesbro did sort of his legacy um, legislation. I think what we can do is really try to aggressively from a state level draw attention to it. A lot of that, what we did in San Francisco was work very closely with our waste provider, which is Recology, and they did a lot of the day-to-day rolling it out. I remember when they rolled out the three trash cans. We have these three trash cans, and they're the biggest hit when you get the little ones, and the kids all love seeing them. But for us, from a state level, it's really working with everybody, all in different jurisdictions, to try to figure out what fits with them. Because what works in San Francisco may not necessarily work in Merced or Eureka or even down in the Imperial Valley. So I think what we try to do is try to set broad guidelines and really raise awareness so people can understand this is something that can be achieved with the right partner. I'd like to talk about Measure AA that's on the June primary ballot in the nine Bay Area counties. Uh, Libby Schaff, what is Measure AA and what would that do for Oakland and other surrounding uh, uh, counties? Well, Measure AA is an incredibly critical ballot initiative this June. And it's kind of historical because this is the first time that we as a region have acted in a unified manner around something other than how to spend the Bay Bridge toll. (laughs) Um, And we are the Bay Area. We are defined by our Bay. And yet we see the devastating impacts of sea level rise. And so Measure AA is a mere $12 a year for each parcel of property owners in the nine Bay Area counties. And that money will go to restore wetlands. Um, California... Uh, of all of its coastline, one-third of it is in the bay. Uh, So if we can do something to really mitigate against the horrific effects of climate change and sea level rise in the Bay Area, we really have done something for California. By restoring wetlands, and and this money, this this, uh, land has already been acquired. It's sitting there waiting to have the wetlands restored. Um, And just, you know, historically, since the time of the gold rush, the Bay Area has gotten rid of 80% of its wetlands. That means that those natural filtrations are gone. That means the water is more polluted. It's more dangerous, not just for wildlife, but also for people. Um, And then it also means that we don't have that great spongy um, substance and that gentle slope that makes uh, the tide uh, action as well as extreme storms um, have the same impact on our communities. And we know that this is going to be critical, particularly for our vulnerable communities that are, when we look at the, what we call the scary maps, um, it is our communities that are already most impacted that will really bear the brunt of this sea level rise and flooding. Sam Licardo, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers often considers the South Bay, San Jose, most vulnerable to sea level rise, particularly if you put in earthquakes, because there's a lot of earthen levees down there that aren't very strong. Uh, so what's at stake for Silicon Valley businesses in buying this insurance, these wetlands, which will kind of buffer the Googles and Facebooks that are really on the bay from uh, future storms? Yeah, well, certainly there are plenty of uh, very prominent businesses there right on the shoreline, but we know that they've got resources to take care of themselves. We're concerned about a lot of folks. We've got a very vulnerable community there, Alviso, working class community with thousands of residents uh, that are constantly in harm's way uh, whenever there is a storm surge or concern about flooding. Uh, We've got a water pollution control plant there, and I can assure you if you're a mayor of a city, uh, the last thing you want to go is at your sewage plant. Uh, nothing good happens when that happens, <laughs> if that's underwater. Uh, we've got a lot of assets right there on the bay, and so we've got a project underway now with the Army Corps to restore 3,200 
acres of wetlands, really critical for us. Uh, certainly for all those assets I described, all the folks who are living there, but it also, by the way, we happen to have Cisco and TiVo and Brocade and a lot of other companies sitting right there on the, on the shoreline, and we'd like to keep them around. Sam LaCarter is the mayor of San Jose. Our other guests today at Climate One are Libby Shaft, mayor of Oakland, and Phil Ting, a state assemblyman from San Francisco. Uh, Phil Ting, I spoke with John Kupal, who's head of the Howard Jarvis uh, Taxpayers Association, invited him to be part of this conversation. He wasn't able, but he said on, on Measure AA, California already has high fuel costs. Why do we need more taxes? And this is actually regressive because Apple headquarters is going to pay the same $12 as the, the resident in Alviso or Alameda. Your response? I, I wanted to first start by just going back to what Mayor Schaff was just talking about, about why this measure is so important. Uh, I was proud to be on the original San Francisco Bay Restoration Authority as the San Francisco member on the original formation of it and working with Save the Bay and David Lewis. And what's amazing is the amount of mileage around the bay that really is at risk. But what's really simple is what Mayor Schaff talked about is how easy just doing habitat restoration will be to really naturally stop what's going on, that this is really the best protection. If, if you think about like Holland and we think about, you know, throwing sandbags when things are getting ready to flood, that really isn't the best way to do it. Just doing this habitat restoration, it's not just good for the environment, but it really is the best way to slow down sea level rise. In terms of uh, Mr. Kapal, uh, Mr. Kapal represents the Howard Jarvis Tax Organization. I don't think there's ever been a tax that Mr. Kapal would ever support. So that's the first point. We know we're in the Bay Area, we're a little more enlightened. We understand if you want to spend money on things that are critical to our community, that you actually need to raise money. Um, he's very good at spending. He's not really good at raising a dime. Uh, the other part about the progressivity, what's interesting is I used to be the former assessor here in San Francisco, <laughs> and uh, he's correct. We, we are quite high in other taxes, and the reason we're at the very bottom in terms of property taxes is because of Howard Jarvis and Prop 13. So actually, the one area where you could stand to increase a little bit of taxes relative to what we're doing, we pay in the bottom quartile nationally in property taxes. So just $12 a year is fairly minimal in terms of what it costs relative to where we compare with other states. It's about one latte. Uh, Mayor Licardo? Yeah, I just want to jump in. I, I, we're all very sensitive to regressive taxes, but you know, Phil made a good point. 12 bucks a year. If you own property in, in the Bay Area, you can probably afford 12 bucks a year. But this is such a small investment for something that has such an extraordinary impact, the ability to restore these wetlands, which really has an awful lot of benefits that uh, really accrue to all of us whether we're concerned about the quality of the water, whether we're concerned about simply sea level rise and our resilience, uh, whether we're concerned about restoring the bay. Uh, there's also carbon sequestration benefits that we get from baylands restoration. There is just so much benefit all throughout this. Um, I, I am really kind of surprised that even John Kapal would oppose this, but I guess I shouldn't be. No, but shouldn't be. Even supporters would say, Libby Schaap, this is just the beginning of what's needed. You used to be involved with the Port of Oakland. That's a huge economic engine for the Bay Area. That's at risk. So where are the, suppose this $12 passes, that's wetlands, that's good. 
where's the next big chunk of money going to get to sort of build the future we need in the Bay Area in a hot world? Yeah, no, in Oakland, um, our coastline is our economic engine. Both our port uh, as well as our airport are right on the water. 73,000 jobs supported by uh, the port activities. And so uh, the great thing, and you should tell Howard Jarvis is as well, <laughs> is that by uh, creating a local tax, it makes us so much more competitive for state and federal funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, a lot of times when you make a small investment, mm-hmm. it draws other funding sources into your area. And again, it creates this awareness. I mean, one of our biggest assets is human behavior. And so the more that we make these small investments that actually build knowledge um, and awareness, we can actually leverage that so many more times over. Building cap and trade, uh, putting a price on carbon pollution in, in California is a few billion dollars that flows from that to reduce uh, carbon pollution in the state. Where is it going? And um, tell us where that, where that is. It's a couple billion dollars growing pretty big now. Well, well, one thing I wanted to just j- jump back to for a second is really how important the Bay is. I, I unfortunately didn't get to grow up in the Bay Area. I grew up in Los Angeles, and growing up in a place where there is no Bay, it's something that is absolutely a treasure, not just to us from an environment standpoint, but like you said, from an economic standpoint, something that we frankly we take for granted every day. And I think Measure AA is really our community making a statement that this is really worth saving, this is really worth preserving on, on so many levels, and it's such a source of pride for all of us. In terms of cap-and-trade dollars, we have about $1.2 billion of ongoing funds. Um, famously, our governor, one of our governor's major projects, which I'm a supporter of, is high-speed rail, and we're working very hard to make that a reality. I'm really excited about the potential electrification between San Francisco and San Jose, and now that um, the high-speed rail authorities really turned to focus on the northern part of the rail project rather than the southern part. I'm even more excited because, frankly, we all know in the Bay Area, we actually ride transit. I can't really speak for my colleagues from the south, but we know that in, in the Bay <laughs> Area, <right> right, <laughs> we, know, we know in the Bay Area, we ride transit every single day, and we have so many folks who are really uh, the lifeblood of that backbone of our economy is transit. And um, that's a huge chunk of the money. The other piece of the money is affordable housing. Affordable housing, as we know, is probably the biggest issue in our region. And it's not just the reason it has, it's in there to reduce greenhouse gas effects. It's affordable housing that's located next to transit nodes. So it'd be next to BART stops, next to Caltrain stops, next to uh, Muni stops or AC Transit or any of the major um, stops around the Bay Area. The other piece of it is really, again, what we talked about earlier, is trying to reduce the consumption of petroleum by uh, really incentivizing more clean vehicles, both from the consumer end, but also incentivizing the creation of clean vehicles and really developing that technology. I want to go to our lightning round. We're talking with Mayor uh, Sam Licardo, Mayor Libby Schaff, and Assemblyman Phil Ting. I'm Greg Dalton at Climate One. Uh, so let's go to our lightning round, which is a brief uh, group of yes or no questions, starting with <laughs> Assemblyman Ting. Uh, yes or no. The Bay Area will have to make difficult and expensive decisions about what neighborhoods it can afford to protect from being flooded by an expanding bay. No. Uh, Follow-up for Assemblyman Ting. The state simply cannot afford to protect every piece of vulnerable property. No. Mayor Schaff, if you owned a piece of property directly on the Bay or Pacific Ocean, you would sell it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> uh, and I would donate the proceeds to the Oakland Promise. <laughs> Mayor Licardo, uh, a recent study from Stanford scientists predicted that, the San Jose, that San Jose will have the weather of San Diego and Seattle will have the weather of San Jose. True or false? Basically uh, moving north. It's yeah, uh, I, I've heard the story. I, I guess I'll say it's true. Uh, Stanford scientist uh, Ken yeah. Caldera. Uh, yes or no, Phil Ting. The Bay Area needs a second BART tube. Yes. Uh, also, follow up for Assemblyman Ting. Paying for it will involve state funds provided with the support of Southern California politicians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yes to the first part, no to the second part. <laughs> <laughs> Mayor Licardo, cleaning up the climate will involve personal sacrifice. Yes. Mayor Schaff, cleaning up the climate will involve personal sacrifice. Yes, and it's worth it. Assemblyman Ting, cleaning up the climate will involve personal sacrifice. Absolutely, yes. Not often you hear politicians talking about per- personal sacrifice. <laughs> uh, now on to another kind of sacrifice. Uh, Mayor Licardo, Efforts to lure the A's from Oakland to a new ballpark <laughs> in San Jose are over. Yes or no? The Supreme Court said so. <laughs> but if anybody else has a major league team and you're interested, we're still open. <laughs> uh, Mayor Schaff, San Jose's efforts to quietly steal the A's are ongoing. Yes or no? No. No. Uh, Assemblyman Ting, if your voters on the west side of San Francisco would allow a new waterfront stadium near the San Francisco Zoo, you would try to steal the A's to your district. (laughs) No. (laughs) Never happened. They don't want anything. They don't want a garage built out there. We we have a baseball team. (laughs) Uh, Mayor Schaff, the Golden State Warriors' new waterfront stadium in San Francisco will one day be an excellent place to play water polo. Actually, as much as it pains me to admit that the Warriors might leave, I would not want it to be underwater. So I think it's not a, if yeah, I can help it. Beyond might. Uh, last question for Mayor Licardo. Rising seas will one day make the Oracle Arena an excellent venue for Olympic swimming events. <laughs> no. We're going we're gonna to make sure we protect, uh, protect these, uh, the baylands and the wetlands. We're going to get this measure passed. Great things will happen. That ends our lightning round. How do you think they did? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a thanks for that. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. In his book, The Metropolitan Revolution, Bruce Katz writes that cities are the future. When he came to Climate One in 2013, Katz explained why he believes that cities have what it takes to spur our economy and ultimately fix the broken politics of big government. Uh, Cities are really networks of elected officials like the mayor, the county leaders, but also corporate, civic, union, university, philanthropic. All of these different sectors of our city are different portions of the network. They can do amazing things by themselves, but when they come together, they can do grand things. And I think cities are really governed, co-governed, but I would call a pragmatic caucus. They put place over party. They put collaboration over conflict, and they put evidence over dogma. It's almost the opposite of what, how Washington operates today. So I think what can happen in the United States, and it's already happening, the energy, the positive pragmatic energy that's underway in the country, if we can see city after city, metropolitan area after metropolitan area, collaborating to compete, 
and finding their game changers and becoming more competitive and more inclusive and more sustainable, over time that pragmatism will infect states and it ultimately infect the national government. America is the most resilient society and the most innovative economy. So, you know, folks, we will get our act together, but this time around it'll come from the communities that are the engines of our economy, the centers of trade and investment, and now the vanguard of policy. That's Bruce Katz, author of The Metropolitan Revolution, How Cities and Metros Are Fixing Our Broken Politics and Fragile Economy. Now let's join Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. So let's come back to uh, BART. Uh, there's a measure, talk about uh, some bonds next year, uh, later this year, actually, uh, Mayor Licardo. Uh, BART's about to come to San Jose. Do you think there's appetite for four or five more billion dollars in bonds to, to fix up BART? Uh, yeah, there is. I and mean, we, uh, we have a huge pent-up need right now to address the traffic congestion we see all over our roads. And we know that uh, transit is really the critical answer for so much of that. Uh, we also know regionally uh, there are efforts, obviously, to shore up the capital needs of the entire BART system. And uh, Libby and, and Mary Ed Lee and I are all talking about how we might look toward 2018 for something uh, bigger and a regional level across all nine Bay Area counties, much as we're doing now with Measure AA, uh, to really make even more significant investments in transit infrastructure. We, uh, we have a lot of catching up to do, as the old Chinese proverb uh, goes, certainly the best time to plant a tree was a generation ago, but the next best time is today. Mayor Schaaf, it was about $400 million to get a little spur from the Coliseum Station to Oakland Airport. Pretty expensive. How are you going to convince voters that BART is uh, you know, money well spent when it's a billion dollars to get to SO, $400 million to get to Oakland? It's big bucks. Well, first of all, this BART bond measure really looks at fix it first and core capacity. And as someone who rode BART over here, <laughs> um, I'm in good company. Uh, in fact, I, I get to know my fellow man very intimately on many of my BART rides. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, even though as mayor I could be driven places, BART is faster because traffic is so bad. Mm-hmm. And, and this is an overarching theme. Traffic congestion, climate change, affordable housing, uh, jobs housing balance. These are problems that don't respect municipal boundaries. We have to act as a region and also see the interconnectivity of all these issues if we are going to put this region and our individual cities on the right track and really serve the people that we uh, have living in our cities. Simon Ting, you chair the state budget committee. Do you see appetite for a few billion dollars in BART bonds? You know, I think all you have to do is look at what happened when people didn't have BART for a day. People Mm -hmm. called in sick. People didn't show up to work. The Bay Area economy took a huge hit. Uh, Every time you do a major infrastructure, whether it's high-speed rail or whether it's rebuilding the Bay Bridge, there's always critique. I'm sure if you go back and look at when we built the Golden Gate Bridge, I'm sure there was a lot of naysayers about how expensive it was and that it was never going to pay off. But years later, we find that find out that we absolutely cannot live without it. And again, our, our economy is regional now. It's no longer a San Jose, Oakland, San Francisco economy. It is a Bay Area economy where we all travel between all the different cities, all the different regions, and it's even more important at that time to make sure all the transit nodes are linked. And if we don't, link them, then we're running this huge climate change problem because people will be commuting from Tracy, Modesto, Vacaville, and driving 
three hours they to get already to work. are they are yeah. and, and the only way to get them out of their cars is to try to get them into transit so i think absolutely there's there's has to be a way that we are looking to um, fund more transportation we at the state are looking at it right now we've been desperately trying to uh, raise taxes at the state level to fund transportation. It's been very hard. As as all of you know, you need two-thirds majorities to raise taxes in the legislature, and we don't have two-thirds majority for either house right now. So getting a single Republican vote to increase fees, even though they're for roads or transportation in their own areas, is next to impossible. Yeah. Mayor Schaff, uh, climate is often thought of as an elite concern, polar bears, glaciers. When you're in West Oakland, when you're talking to people who are trying to get by and pay their rent, uh, how do you connect climate or fossil fuel to those people's concerns? You hear about it from your voters. Uh, climate gives us an opportunity to address equity issues. And so when I talk to low-income residents that, for example, are transit-dependent, if there's a flooding in their neighborhood, it is harder for them, one, to evacuate, and two, uh, to get their children to school, to get uh, to medical help, to get to their jobs. Um, when we look at people who live near the Port of Oakland, the asthma rate is shameful, shameful. And so when the Port of Oakland uh, required ships that come into dock to stop just idling those dirty diesel engines and plug into some clean electrical source, that has a direct impact on the people in West Oakland who don't have to bring their children to the doctor so much, who don't have missed days of school and missed days of work, um, who people who live near flooding hazards um, can have uh, respiratory ailments from more mold and mildew. This is a human issue, and I, I love saying this, like, we talk about sea level rise with an image in our minds of a, of a ruler sticking out of a body of water. And we've got to stop thinking about that. We've got to think about the family that is stranded in the flooded neighborhood. Um, the family that is bringing their child to the hospital with an asthma attack because of the quality of air instead of bringing them to school. We have to put humans in the center of this. Mayor Licardo, that's a lot of what Pope Francis was saying in his encyclical, is think about the, the people, uh, the equity issues, people hurt by the fossil fuel economy. Uh, how do you see that we can address climate and equity at the same time? Because often clean energy costs more. Uh, it can. Uh, obviously, it depends how we invest and how we plan. But I think Libby's fundamentally right here. Uh, this is both uh, a question of social justice and of environmental justice. Uh, and, you know, it is so ubiquitous in cities like San Jose and really throughout the state. Uh, how close you live to a freeway uh, has enormous impacts on your health, and we can predict what your income is based on your proximity to that freeway. Um, we know that the mobility of people, the ability to get to jobs, to get to school, to get to services, is so much more constrained where you do not have cities with great transit options. Um, it, you know, this dependence that we have on the automobile is not just, does not just take an environmental toll. It is clearly taking an economic toll. Uh, we are stranding entire communities uh, with freeways that have cut through uh, working class neighborhoods, really destroying those neighborhoods and isolating communities from opportunities in various ways. I want to dispel a few myths, I, I think, by your, your question. So one is we actually have more jobs in this state in the clean energy sector than we do with the three IOUs combined. The IOUs are, I'm sorry, uh, PG&E, Edison, and Sempras, so the San Diego Gas and Electric. 
So again, this has meant so much to our economy, not just in the Bay Area, but really all up and down the state, that the clean energy economy now has more employees than the three large utilities in this state. The other part that's really fabulous, especially in solar, solar now at a price point is completely competitive with fossil fuel. The other piece of solar that really is wonderful is these are great entry-level jobs. These are jobs that don't leave California because if you want to put solar panels on a roof in California, then that's a California job. That's a Bay Area job. That's an Oakland job, a San Jose job, a San Francisco job. And that's what we've really seen by investing in the state puts resources in, ratepayers put resources in. I know we as a city in San Francisco put resources in, and we're really reaping the benefits because our one, our uh, neighborhoods are reaping the benefits of the economy and the environment, but we're also seeing a huge uptick in jobs. And I'd add, you know, financing tools have come a long way with PACE programs. Uh, San Jose has now uh, got the fifth highest uh, dissemination of solar in, of any city in the country, and we're going to keep growing fast uh, as we get more PACE programs out there to enable folks to be able to finance those improvements and hopefully be able to do it increasingly in multifamily properties. Just to make sure people know what PACE is, it's the ability to put energy efficiency improvements onto your property taxes. So it's kind of self-financing. Um, you don't have to pay at all if you end up selling the property. And I think a lot of people don't realize that you can also re-landscape your lawn um, for drought-resistant um, plants also uh, along with energy efficiency. Uh, we're talking about uh, resilience and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. That was Libby Schaff, mayor of Oakland. Other guests today are Mayor Sam Licardo of San Jose and Assemblyman Phil Ting. So that's a good point, the drought. We haven't touched on the drought yet. Water is a really big issue. Sam Licardo, uh, we had a wet year, but we, we it's, uh, only, you didn't bring as much water as it might have. So what are you doing down there to, to manage water? Uh, the drought will be with us, and uh, we've got to do both the little things and the big things. The little things, we need to do a better job ensuring every consumer has the information they need to be able to conserve properly. And that means smart meters uh, and those programs that ensure people are responding well. The prices in water, we need uh, a little help uh, from the state PUC to change some of the rules as well to ensure that we can pass along prices to those who are consuming more. Uh, but uh, and the big things are important as well. And I know all of our cities are working on major capital projects. What we're working on in San Jose uh, is a groundwater recharge program, taking recycled water purifying at very high levels. We're already purifying about 8 million gallons a day today. That's water we can drink. Uh, at least I can drink it. The state uh, won't yet approve it for drinking, but I've tried it, and I can tell you it's a, less, a lot less toxic than whatever I drank in college. But we're, 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 we're taking that water, and, and, and we want to put it back into the ground uh, because we are really concerned about the extent to which this drought has caused um, our, our ground levels to shrink. Uh, and so we've got to, to bolster that and then create a sustainable, clean water supply right underneath our feet. Tilting, should the state invest more in dams and storage, uh, put resources there, or recycling, stormwater capture, those sorts of things? Yeah, I'm much more of a fan of the recycling water and the capture. Um, it's a big issue in the Central Valley where storage is a big issue. And so when we did our last water bond, there was some storage in that water bond, which we as voters all passed. And it was actually very, very critical that we pass that water bond because much of it is going to repair and maintain and manage the infrastructure that really helps deliver that water. And unfortunately, just similar to the BART bond that's on discussion, all it did was just maintain the water system. Didn't expand it, didn't actually give us additional water. It just really made sure that the maintenance was there 
for the deferred maintenance that had been there for so many years. So water is still a major issue at the state level. Um, it's probably the toughest political issue in the state because uh, agriculture, as we all know, uses about 80% of our state's water supply. Uh, and again, they are a huge part of our economy and a huge part of uh, a particular region, the Central Valley in the state. And so that is a very contentious issue. My, my hope is that we're going to continue to make more progress. We're very lucky we had an El Nino year, but it's no question we have to look at new technology, whether it's desalinization, whether it is uh, looking at all the technologies that Mayor Licardo just mentioned. But really, um, I think we have to continue to push the envelope for what we do best, which is to very much innovate in these technologies. Libby Schaaf, there's a big coal terminal plan for Oakland. Is that a good idea to put a bunch of money into coal at this time? The u- largest U.S. coal company just filed for bankruptcy. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> let me start by saying that the city of Oakland uh, must, has a duty to abide by all of its contractual obligations. And so I'm really not at liberty to talk specifically about this uh, terminal I can talk very generally about my absolute commitment to um, ensuring that not just Oakland, but the state of California stop handling coal and stop promoting the use of coal, not just where we live, but in any part of the world. Um, We in the city of Oakland are uh, very seriously studying uh, potential health and safety impacts of handling coal at our terminals and are looking uh, at our options for adopting uh, appropriate regulations. Um, And and that is our right to do for this particular project. Uh, I'm very focused on doing that in a way that is responsible and consistent with what I believe the people of Oakland feel very strongly about. One thing that's been noted, uh, Phil Ting is chair of the budget committee, is that people in California pay sales taxes on goods, but not services. We're in a gig economy where a service economy is a bigger part of it. Uh, Can you envision a day as chair of the budget committee when services are subject to sales tax in in a way that goods are now? Well, I think we, you you know, our tax system is completely broken. I'll say that. We, We have a really archaic old tax system. And if you think about it, people's frustration with sales taxes going up and up and up is partly because we are taxing things that, as, a, as, a, as part of our economy, are shrinking. So, of course, as the part of that economy shrinks, in order to get more revenue, you, you have to go raise it. While the part of the economy that's growing, we actually don't touch at all. So uh, if you're actually going to provide tax relief for everybody, what would be smarter is to potentially lower the rate smooth it out across the board and actually provide greater relief across the board. Um, We're actually seeing some of this starting to percolate in Sacramento because we actually tax things that really don't make much sense. I have two of my colleagues who are fighting taxes on diapers and and, uh, tampons right now, uh, but we actually tax those items, but we don't tax candy, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So again, these are just some of the items I think are really starting are thinking about, hey, we need to revisit the whole taxation policy instead of hailing this one by one. I know Senator Bob Herzberg, our former speaker in the Assembly, has proposed a service tax. I think it really deserves a hard look. Bill, you just lost the chocolate vote. (laughs) I love chocolate, by the way. Before we go to audience questions, I want to come back to the vulnerable communities. Libby Schaff, people who are elderly or don't live in air-conditioned buildings, we're in a world where it's going to be hotter 
more uh, atmospheric rivers, where there's flooding events? What is Oakland doing for cooling centers or for other things to help people who are vulnerable in a hot and wild weather world? Well, I'll, I'll say again, our first focus is on the sea level rise. And that's why I'm so passionate about Measure AA and really urge everyone to support that. Because that's where we see kind of the first wave of impacts, particularly with regard to Oakland's climate. But this, I mean, we are, you know, we, we have so many resiliency challenges. Um, income inequality, housing insecurity, uh, the threats of of wildfires and earthquakes. Um, these are all things that Oakland is no stranger to. Uh, and so as we look at ways um, to combat climate change, we are absolutely going to vulnerable communities first. Um, we're excited to be um, part of something that I know uh, Sam is also involved with, which is a design challenge um, that we're hoping to get support for um, to get different teams that actually work with the communities and engage them and invite these very communities to actually tell us how they see solutions to these types of problems. And I think that kind of conversation and empowering of the impacted c- communities is something that we could do a much, much better job of. Topic today, Climate One is preparing the Bay Area for the future of climate change. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Sam Licardo, Mayor of San Jose, Libby Schaff, Mayor of Oakland, and Assemblyman Phil Ting from San Francisco. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hey, guys. Thank you very much for coming today. I really appreciate you guys being here. I'm a San Francisco resident. I'm relatively uneducated on the matter, and one initial uh, question that comes to mind is, what are you guys doing to mitigate the risks of the targets that you guys set as um, you guys aim to reduce, say, carbon um, pollution? But it seems that these targets are kind of moving in a way where we have many developing nations around the world, such as China, Russia, um, Brazil, you name it, where you know they're experiencing a high rate of growth. And the targets that you guys set that are based on estimates of where pollution is going to be at some point in time – seem to me to be moving targets. And it's hard to, you know, aim to reduce carbon emissions by a certain amount if those amounts are based on targets that are always moving. Mayor Schaff, you are into carbon accounting. I am. So just so you know, um, it, it, it all depends on what you set your baseline at. So we set our baseline based on a year. And so I'm really proud when I say that we've reduced our consumption emissions by 14 percent. That's in spite of the fact that, you know, Oakland is hot, not just in a climate sense, but also in a growth sense. And so um, the that. 14% is based on that year despite the growth. And when we um, were in Paris and many of us signed on to the Compact of Cities, Oakland was proud to sign on to the Under 2 MOU. Um, It really does not allow people to have funky math like that. (laughs) So um, that I think that is part of the international conversation, which is having uh, measurements that we all agree to. And I think a lot of those measurements will be transparent on the web. There'll be a lot of people watching to make sure that these, uh, these elected officials don't, uh, don't game the system. Let's go to our next audience question. Thanks very much for a really terrific talk. Um, my question uh, is in regards to uh, the players going forward in combating climate change. I mean, we're in the Bay Area, uh, some of the wealthiest companies in the world. I mean, what is the type of interaction that should happen between private sector that has a lot of money uh, and also has an interest in protecting the Bay Area 
city level, state level, and maybe even the federal level. What is the relationship uh, supposed to look like for an effective outcome? Who'd like to tackle that one about cross-sector collaboration? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I know this is true for Mayor Schaff as well, that, you know, mayors of cities with a lot of innovative people and innovative companies are increasingly looking outside City Hall for solutions. And we're partnering with a lot of great companies around everything from uh, designing less expensive ways to be able to move from old style of lighting to energy efficient LEDs um, to being able to deploy sensor technology in ways uh, that can substantially reduce congestion and greenhouse gas emissions. There are all these innovations out there, and we depend enormously on the brain power outside City Hall to enable us to move forward and really become models for other cities throughout the, the country. Uh, obviously, we'd all love them to ca- just write a big check, uh, and certainly many of them do write big checks. I know that uh, Libby's doing a pretty good job of that these days with the Oakland Promise, uh, but the reality is they also have to be accountable to shareholders. So while we all continue to hit them up for checks, uh, what I think is where we're going to get the most bang for our buck is really uh, working with them to see how we can launch effective innovations. And if I can, can I just add, um, you know, for example, with Measure AA, the Silicon Valley Leadership Group is playing a big leadership role in that ballot measure, not just um, through funding it, but by campaigning it for it. And, And, you know, at the end of the day, People who run companies are human beings that also are grandparents. Um, so there is a consciousness out there. And I've been really impressed with um, just the diversity of leadership that has stepped up to say this is a critical issue. Uh, regardless of what my company is going to do tomorrow, this is a future of the Bay Area and of the planet issue. And in Paris, um, everyone said that what made this cop uh, conference of parties different was the role of subnationals. Now, I know that sounds like a disease, but subnationals <laughs> means major players who are not countries. And the private sector was there, the NGOs were there, cities were really highlighted, local climate action. So I think people are recognizing that that's where the action is. I think in San Francisco, I was going to say that we've been. Uh, really initiating some of the most aggressive green building ordinances. And a lot of that was driven from increasing people's knowledge of what was out there and really putting this baseline of greenhouse gases and really trying to figure out from a partnership point of view how to reduce it. The built environment in San Francisco is probably about half of the greenhouse gas uh, carbon footprint in our city. So really looking at attacking and working with real estate companies and their tenants to really demand that. The you know, one example I would give you is if you look at LEED certification, if you talk to people maybe about 15, 20 years ago, nobody knew what LEED certification is. Now, if you want to be in a Class A building in San Francisco, it has to be LEED certified. You have tenants who really won't move in. They don't find it interesting. They don't want to uh, be part of a building that's not environmentally labeled. So just by doing that labeling and actually acknowledging this is the standard and actually having having a nonprofit, the U.S. Green Building Council, do that has really set a standard for everybody, both from the tenant side but also from the landlord side. Bill Thing is a member of the California State Assembly from San Francisco. We're talking about preparing for climate change at Climate One. Let's go to our next audience question. Yeah, uh, hi. I got a question from Mayor Schaff. Uh, my name is David. I'm a resident of Oakland. Um, I, I have a, a question on why, why not hard greenhouse gas targets and goals for Oakland? 
consumption just seems very difficult to, to measure, if not actually like execute. Yeah, I've been a resident for about five years. I, ha- I haven't heard of it. Uh, the shoes I bought from Amazon, I know you, I hope you don't know what I bought. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, what, why not like harder greenhouse gas? Oh, no, we're doing both. We're measuring both. But what is unique is most cities only measure their core emissions reductions. Oakland is unique in that it also tries to measure consumption. Um, And again, I just think that's an important part of the conversation because once again, climate change does not respect municipal boundaries. We have to continue to build our awareness of our interconnectivity with everyone else on this planet. Um, But we do have aggressive goals in Oakland. Uh, We have a goal of reducing uh, by 83% our core emissions by the year 2050. That's an aggressive goal. It exceeds the national standard uh, and we're proud of it and we are absolutely committed to meeting it. Um, But we're very excited to be working with UC Berkeley to come up with a method for trying to measure consumption reductions as well as core reductions. Thank you for that question. Let's have our next one. Uh, Thanks. Uh, Another carbon accounting question. How do you measure emissions, particularly from transit, um, across municipal boundaries? So if I drove from San Jose to a BART station in Oakland and then took BART into San Francisco, whose emissions are those? Not that I did that. That's a great question because, let's face it, uh, so many of us live in one city and work in another. Uh, Not Libby or I because that would be illegal, but (laughs) the rest of us. Well, well, I do. um, Which is exactly why we need to be using regional metrics as well and have regional solutions. And just, you know, I think it's interesting, 70% of core emissions on the planet come out of cities. And that is why cities are an important part of this conversation. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next question. Thank you. I'm Steve Cadivor. Last night, John Martin, the San Francisco International Airport director, gave a presentation at our club. He made a reference to their strategic plan, which includes raising the wall around SFO in anticipation of dealing with future problems. Any update about Oakland? And San Jose Airport? Update on uh, Oakland San and San Jose Airports. Thank you. So Oakland, Oakland did just yeah, add an San extension um, by BART to, directly to our airport. But we also have to build up our levees around the Oakland Airport. We've also been doing some wetlands um, uh, restoration as well. It's critical. And, I mean, it's interesting. Most airports are right on the coast. Yeah. Our, our airport is a little less vulnerable because it's a bit more inland. Uh, but we've got plenty of assets we need to protect. And let's face it, we can't build an arc large enough for everyone, so we better build some levees. And it's one thing to protect the airport, but if the roads to get to the airport are flooded, that's a whole other set of problems. Yeah. Let's go to our, our question at Climate One. Hi, guys. My name is uh, Jason. I uh, just want to say thanks. You guys are awesome. Uh, so my question pertains to industrial agriculture. Um, you know, when, when talking about climate change, you know, a big focus is on transitioning to renewable energy, but uh, transitioning from industrial agriculture to regenerative agriculture is just as important. Can you guys talk about your efforts, uh, if any, in making the transition from industrial agriculture to regenerative agriculture? Thanks. We'd like to go first on food and, and ag 
You know, I'm not. Would I'm not say? sure if I know exactly how you're defining regenerative agriculture. I can tell you that as part of our resiliency mindset in Oakland, um, we look at being localists in all things because it makes you a stronger community. And so, kind of backyard agriculture, urban agriculture is a huge movement in Oakland. And it's not just about um, having food production being close to where it's consumed. Um, it's also, you know, a health issue, uh, a food justice issue. Um, I was just at Castlemont High School in East Oakland, and they have ripped out uh, the asphalt and created a huge garden. They have a fruit orchard, and they now have a whole nutrition class. The most inspirational thing I saw was that they converted what used to be, this just blew my mind, a gun range for the ROTC, a (laughs) gun range at a high school. Oh, it is the happy news, and this is particularly interesting on today's date, um, is that they are now teaching about hydroponic cultivation, and really, they've now turned this whole area, what was a gun range, into a fab lab and a um, indoor agricultural uh, training ground where the kids are growing their own food, they're making it available as healthy snacks for their own students during the day, and they're even working to go to corner stores and make locally grown fruit available at corner liquor stores in little baskets. It, it is a beautiful thing, and it uh, goes beyond climate change as far as all the great benefits that this type of movement can take. Swords into plowshares, Sam McConnell. Guns into plowshares, even yeah. better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's an incredibly passionate group of guerrilla farmers in San Jose, and I know this is true in other cities throughout the Bay Area, that are really transforming our urban uh, landscape, and we're doing everything we can just to try to get out of the way and, and let them do it, find every empty lot. And in some cases, really large parks with this beautiful park called Lambeprouche in the East San Jose area. And, and uh, they have transformed an entire community. Hundreds of kids are in there learning about uh, how to grow food. And it's a beautiful thing. One of the, fact, one of the great things I did my uh, very first year was work with the Coalition of Urban Agriculture uh, organizations and folks in passing a state law that really allows local cities, counties, jurisdictions to opt in to a property tax discount for private landowners. So we, we see urban agriculture quite commonly on public lands or or um, non use state lands, but for a lot of vacant properties, which we have a lot of all over our state and really in our most dense urban cores, we, we gave an incentive for property owners to convert that into urban ag, and we reduced their property taxes, very similar to a uh, urban Williamson Act, which is very common for people who are in the rural world. And I was very excited. San Francisco was the first city to opt in. Uh, L.A. is now opting in. San Diego is looking at it. Sacramento has opted in. And so would uh, love to work with other cities around the, around the state to really encourage them to really utilize this potential benefit. We have to end it there. We're out of time. I'd like to thank Phil Ting, member of the California State Assembly, Mayor Libby Schaff of Oakland, and Mayor Sam Licardo of San Jose. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to Climate One podcasts online. Topics on include fracking, food, all sorts of other things. Uh, and I'd like to thank our audience in the room here in San Francisco and online and on radio. Thank you all for coming being part of this. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.